0: Good morning, everybody. Good to see you this morning. Why don't you uh, turn to a neighbor and just welcome them. Say, it's awful good to see you this morning. So glad to be in the house of the Lord with you. (laughs) Praise God. Well, listen, I'm going to go ahead and jump right into it. The past couple of weeks, I have been um, doing a sermon sort of mini-series on grace, and I kind of want to extend that. And I got a thought from the Lord this week, and I want to kind of carry it out. But it's about grace and identity. And, and I want to call this series Grace Encounters. And this first message in particular, I want to talk about being redeemed and chosen. So if you would, let's read from uh, Luke chapter 19. I want to read this story, and we'll come back to it at the end. But we, let's read this and, and pray together, and then we'll jump right into it. Luke chapter 19, verse 1 through 10. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly, and all the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek And to save the lost amen would you pray with me this morning father we are just so grateful to be called the children of god we're so grateful to be able to meet together in your presence in your house and give you the glory the honor that is due your name and father we just declare that we need you desperately lord we need your spirit we need you to teach us we live in a world that's constantly forcing its pressure upon us god trying to shape us and mold us But Jesus, you've called us out of darkness and into light so that we could be transformed into your image and that we could carry that light. So Lord, you know the heart of every person that's here this morning, every person that's listening. You know what they need. You know the truth that they need. And Father, this message has no power unless it becomes your message and unless it is anointed by your Spirit. So I pray, God, that you would give us a heart to receive and ears to hear that we would be changed by your word this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' mighty name amen amen so we want to talk about grace encounter because every encounter that you anybody had with jesus in the scripture and any encounter that anybody has with jesus today is an encounter with grace and jesus came into the world and has unleashed a grace on us that has come to restore us to our true identity And Satan is working full-time in our world. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but the world system has been formed, and Satan and lies are running rampant. And one thing that he is after is he wants to get people confused about their identity from a very young age. And he is attacking the identity of the children of God to make them believe that they're something they're not. And how we're going to be powerful in this world as believers and followers of Jesus Christ is to know who we are in Christ and to know who Christ is in us. So we've got to understand our identity, and oftentimes understanding our identity comes down to whether or not we have had this encounter with the grace of God. Because when He comes into our life, He intends on bringing redemption. See, grace, the word, the Greek word for grace is charis, and it simply means a gift that you did not earn and a gift that you did not deserve. And every encounter that somebody has with Jesus, He extends to them a gift. And at the core of that gift is their redemption, which is a restoration to their true identity. When somebody comes to Jesus, I don't know about you, but when I had an encounter with Jesus, what I had an encounter with said all of a sudden, Clay, up to this point you have believed that this is who you are. This is the labels that you have wore. This is what you have called yourself. But I'm telling you none of that was ever who you truly are. I'm telling you today who you are in me and I'm giving you a new name. You're a new creation. You're something different than what you have thought you were. You've been living under these false identities, but you've had an encounter with grace, and this redemption is a restoration of your true identity. And so beneath this understanding of our redemption, what what are we actually being restored to, and what is our true identity is another very big question that we've got to answer, and everybody's trying to answer it in our world today, and that is what does it mean to be human? If we're being restored to something, what is it exactly that we're being restored to? Because what's happening in our world is that we we don't recognize that we're broken. And in our brokenness and in our fallenness and in our sinfulness, we're looking to love that and affirm that and say that is good, that is who you are. And I'm saying no, that is not who you are according to Scripture. Jesus Christ has come to purchase you back from that false identity, back out of that sinfulness, back out of conformity to the world, and give you a true and a new identity to make you the human being that he designed you to be. So what does it mean to be human? What's it mean to be human? I'm guessing you've had a moment where, have you ever just like been to the beach and you're seeing the waves crashing on your feet? You look up at the sky. I read something, I read something just not, not long ago that talks about how there's billions of stars just within our galaxy. And then beyond our galaxy are billions more galaxies. Would be, and you just think about the wonder of God. Just just how uh, uh, immense God himself is, that, that there's an ocean crashing on you. You see the stars in the heaven you're thinking, man, what, what in the world am I in this, in this entire thing? And the psalmist had a very, a very uh, similar mindset. He had a very similar thought in Psalm chapter 8. He said, when I consider your heavens, verse 3, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, What is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? And he's thinking, man, this is so immense. What does it actually mean to be human and, and to think that God thinks about me in just, in just the vastness of all of this? And here's the thing, I want to give a biblical answer to that question, but I want us to also look at the answer that is provided by the world or secularism. You all know what secularism It's a Latin word that simply means let's cut God out, let's cut the heavens out, let's not let Him in the schools, and let's adopt the philosophy of this world instead of the identity that God has called these children to be amen and it's being pushed and it's it's being pushed at a very high level but here's what I want to look at there's a guy named uh, Carl Becker who was a philosopher and he has a a secular mindset and here's what he said he kind of poked at this psalm and he said what is man that the electron should be mindful of him man is but a foundling in the cosmos abandoned by the forces that created him unparented unassisted and undirected by an omniscient or benevolent authority. He must fend for himself and with the aid of his own limited intelligence find his way about in an indifferent universe. Just soak that in a minute and let hope arise. I mean, doesn't that just strengthen you and make you feel good right down in your core? Because secular, the, the world is seeking so hard right now to find an identity. Our children are grasping trying to figure out who they are, I identify as this, I identify as that, because they don't know who they truly are in God, and our world is pumping ideologies into them that leave God out, that shut God out, that shut out their true identity, and this is some of the best stuff that they can come up with in secularism. At the end of the day, you're nobody. You're unparented, you're unassisted, you're on your own, undirected, abandoned, and your life is meaningless, and you live in a universe that could care less what happens to you. Amen. Can I tell you that the biblical truth is the exact opposite of that? You are parented. You are assisted. And you were created by God who loves you more than you could ever imagine in spite of your sinfulness, in spite of your brokenness. And he demonstrated his love for you that he sent Jesus to show up and say, Look, here I am. I want to lead you back to who you were truly made to be. You've been lied to your whole life. You've been believing lies and they're coming at you 100 miles an hour, but I'm telling you, that is not who you are and I need you to know who I've made you to be. And Jesus comes in love and he comes in grace, not because he's mad or angry at us, because he knows that these lies will destroy us and they are eating at our soul and every human being is longing for that affirmation, for that affection that only God can give. And the world offers them a thousand labels and said, if you'll pin this one on you, maybe you'll feel better about yourself. If you'll pin that one on you, maybe you'll feel, but maybe you'll feel more loved. Maybe you'll feel more accepted. Maybe you'll feel uh, more included. But God is saying, no, you want to be included, step into the family of God and figure out who you've truly been made to be. And so Jesus comes to bring this restoration. But we're living in a cultural moment where people are desperately trying to construct an identity. Like I said, I, and when I was a kid, nobody even talked about the stuff they talk about now. But, but everybody's saying, I identify as, I identify as. Because why? Because there's an onslaught of attack against true identity in God. And you need to be aware of that as a Christian believer because he's coming to come at the core of your being and the soul cries out, and goes in a search of an alternative identity that, because they're craving this love and affirmation. And this, the world is offering us a story just like this philosopher says so that you can try to figure out who you are. But see, there's a better narrative than what the world is telling us. And it is the fact that God loved you so much that he sent Jesus to purchase your redemption, to restore in you the image of God, to show you who you are truly called to be. And see, we are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, and in the ancient world, whenever somebody was enslaved, somebody could come in and liberate them by purchasing them out and redeeming them and setting them free, and it was called redemption, and I love that picture. I read this story this week, and I actually, I think I shared it with Caitlin on Wednesday, but I read this story this week, and it was about Abraham Lincoln. I like Abraham Lincoln, but... It may be urban legend, I looked in different places to see if it was solidified fact, and I couldn't for sure, but I saw the story in a couple different places, but here's what it was. A few, maybe 20 years before Abraham Lincoln became president, he was an attorney, and he was traveling around in different places, and I think he was in in Illinois, and he went uh, uh, to a slave auction. And at that particular slave auction, they, he, he walks in and they're selling off all these slaves and they're bringing them up on the block and selling them one by one. And then all of a sudden something changes because they had been selling men who were workers and all of a sudden something changes and they bring women out, young women, out onto the platform. And the men start hollering and going nuts because he realizes at this point that they're probably going to sell these young women as sex slaves. And he's so disgusted and horrified at what's taking place in front of him, and it was just normal for that time of day, he's so disgusted and horrified that anger and rage rises up in him from the back of the room, and he hollers out in rage to the degree that it shuts up hundreds of men in a moment of time, and they turn back after they had been bidding on this beautiful woman, and he cries out a price that nobody would even dare touch, and it silences the entire room. And they're all thinking to themselves, man, if this dude is willing to pay that price for this girl, what does he want to do with her? And he sits in the back of the room and the auctioneer realizes nobody's going to meet that price. So he says, sold, sends her back to Abraham Lincoln. She comes back to him. He looks her in the eyes and he says, young lady, you're free to go. She says, what do you mean free to go? Now she's contemplating and wrestling, what what does it even mean to be free? She says, does this mean I can go anywhere? He says, yes, you can go anywhere, you're free to go. She said, does this mean I can leave here with anybody that I want to? And he says, yeah, you can go with anybody you want to. I've paid for your redemption, you're free. And she thought about it a little bit longer, and she says, well, if I'm really free to go anywhere and with anyone, then, sir, I believe I'll go with you. I want you to think about that because, see, at the core of who we are, if any of us have met Jesus, I want to believe that at the core of who we are, it's because of this encounter with grace like that, that we saw Jesus and we saw the price that he was willing to pay. And we had an encounter with the grace of Jesus where we said, you know what, if you really think I'm that valuable and if you really think I'm worth that much, but yet you're still willing to let me choose and go free, then you know what, I believe I will follow you. If you're going to set me free to do whatever I want and say I've purchased your redemption and not only did I do it, I didn't purchase it with money. I purchased it with my own blood. I laid down my life for you so that you could have life and I'm giving you freedom. Then we see that in our hearts and we say, you know what, sir, I will follow you. And she had that recognition in her heart because when we're redeemed and bought back, Jesus isn't forcing us to do anything, but he wants us to have such a revelation of his love that we say, man, I'm following you. And I remember that moment. I don't know about you, but I remember that moment when he bought me back, when all of my false identities, when everything I thought I was, when all the labels I'd put on myself, when all of the sins that I thought this is just who I am were broken. And he said, that's not who you are. That's not who I've called you to be. And I remember that love. I remember that moment. I said, there's nothing better than this. I'm following this man. And see, this is something because redemption in Christ Jesus isn't adding value to something worthless, but restoring value to something priceless. It's not adding value to something. He's not saying, you know what, y'all are worthless, but I'm going to die for you and add value to you. He's saying, no, I created you in my image according to my design, and you are very valuable to me. I'm not just adding value to something worthless. I'm restoring value to something that is priceless. He's reminding you of who you are. He's getting back down to the core of your being and telling you this is not who you are. See, Abraham Lincoln didn't see a worthless slave girl. He saw a young, beautiful woman created in the image of God of unsurpassable value and worth and said, I'll pay any price to see her go free because she doesn't need to be under this. And that's what Jesus sees in us. One problem we have as Christians is we often don't see this clearly and we're set free but we still live as if we had the same old chains. We walk in here as Christians and say, yeah, I'm a follower of Christ. But we carry the same chains with us everywhere that we go. The same identities, the same false labels, the same past sins. And our world is teaching us to identify ourselves with those sins. I'm telling you, how can you live any longer in those sins if you've, been, if you've died to them in Christ Jesus? He's saying you may struggle with it, but it is not who you are. Your impulses, your desires, your sinful gratifications, that's not your identity. He says, I've come to give you something new, something better, something fresh to live out of. And at the core of the meaning of redemption is the question, what does it mean to be human? And in Genesis 1, God lays it out right out of the gate. He said, verse 26, God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish of the, the sea and the birds of the air. Now, that's, that's two specific words for image and likeness. I know you don't care about the Hebrew, but it makes, they're, they're connected in other places in Scripture. He says they're going to be over the livestock, all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Notice this, male and female, He created them. Male and female, He created them. And see, this this itself is under attack in our generation. Would you agree with that? The image of God is under attack in our generation. What it means to be a human being is under attack in our generation. And it's more under attack than I've ever seen it before. See, God didn't create gender to be fluid. He created it male and female. And then He he ordered and structured marriage around it. And he He said, look, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife. And Jesus quoted that scripture to talk about how families should function and see what's happening is secularism and the demonic powers are actually attacking this true vision of what it means to be a human being trying to mar the image of God in us, trying to get us to believe lies about who we truly are. And so the author is trying to make it plain and simple because here's, here's one thing that I want you to know. When you talk about image and likeness, there's been thousands of books written on what it means, what these two words mean. But number one, most importantly, it means simply that we are the children of God. And, and we hear that all the time and think, wow, child of God, what's that even mean? And I want you to understand exactly what it means. And I think our people here have a better idea maybe than anybody because we got a lot of babies here. Amen. And we have a good understanding. Only one time outside of Genesis 1 are these two words found side by side. It's in Genesis 5.3. It said when Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. The author is trying to say that what God is, what humanity is to God is what Seth is to Adam, a beloved child. A beloved child. And here's the thing. We got all kinds of babies in here. Most of you all, you got a child, you have a child. When you had that child, I mean, do you, do you remember just love exploding in your heart in a way like it never before? And here's the thing. You know, Andrea, we, up to this point, we've not been able to have our own biological children. We adopted Naomi. That's known. I promise you with every fiber of my being, the scripture says that one part of our identity is that we have been adopted into the family of God. There's no possible way that I could love any human being more than I love Naomi. She has been adopted into my family, but she is my family. And the love that I have in my heart for her, it's aggressive. It's fierce. You know what I'm saying? I mean, and I feel it's almost painful. And I think about that. I was talking to one of my buddies the other day when we were playing golf, and he said, he said my little girl said to me last night, she said, Dad, Dad.' He said, what? She said, Jesus spoke something to my heart. And he said, oh, yeah, what was it? He said that he loves me way, way, way more than you do, and it breaks his heart. <laughs> And I said, you know what, I doubt it breaks his heart, but I bet he does love her way, 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 way more than you do. And can you imagine that kind of infinite love, that you are loved infinitely more than you love your child? That kind of protection, that kind of fierceness. So when we say we're a child of God, we're not just saying that flippantly and saying, no, my father loves me, son. He, he has an aggressiveness over me, a protectiveness over me. There's nothing passing by in my life that I know my father is not watching and looking at. Every now and then I'll let Naomi go drink out of a puddle. You know what I'm talking about? And I know I can't let it go too far, but I'm going to let her experience some things. You know what i And sometimes the father will let me go out and drink out of a puddle that I shouldn't necessarily be drinking out of, but he'll use it to teach me something but he loves me. We are the children of God and that's so important to understand. Karl Barth was a famous theologian. You guys probably haven't heard of him, but he was a famous theologian, written some wonderful books and a bunch of academic scholars came to him and they said, we want the most profound theological thought that you've ever thought in your entire life. And they sat down and they're pushing, them oh and they're chomping at the bit. They got their notebooks out. They're about to write something down. They're hoping that maybe it'll be enough to write a book, something like that. They're thinking he's going to unpack predestination or where is God in? Some suffering or something like that and you know what he says the most profound theological thought that I have ever had in my life is Jesus loves me this I know the Bible tells me so and what's he saying he's saying that you can get into all kinds of deep theology but until you realize the love of God the father for you his son and daughter you don't know anything throw predestination out the window, throw superlapsarianism out the window, all the big theological terms mean nothing in the love of God, mean nothing in the presence of God. And he's saying you need this encounter, this raw encounter with God. Secondly, to be in His image and likeness, to be made in His image and likeness, means that number two, we are royalty. You would expect that the summary of the Old Testament about human beings would be like this. Well, they're basically just trash. I mean, look at them. They were born from the dust, from the dust they shall return. They're nothing but trash, they're wicked sinners, they're evil. And let me say this, we are wicked sinners. you agree with that? The Bible teaches that. We are sinners in need of a Savior. But this response in Psalm 8 is quite different because he says, What is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You, made them, you have made them a little lower than the angels. Now this word angels is Elohim and it's really translated God more than any other other word it can mean spiritual beings it can mean God you've made them a little lower than spiritual beings heavenly beings perhaps even God himself now we're not God by any stretch of the imagination but he says you've set him under them and crowned them with glory and honor you made them rulers over the works of your hands you put everything under their feet that means this crowned language It's royal language because kings and queens were crowned and they had rule. They were rulers over certain situations. And Genesis 1, when God created human beings, he's saying, you guys are rulers and I have crowned you with dignity and authority and it is royal language. You have royal identity. In In the ancient world, there were three tiers of being. You had divinity, you had royalty, and then you had humanity. So you had God, and you had those that were basically living in castles that were reflecting the image of God and the authority of God. And that's why they thought if you served the king in those days that you were ultimately serving God. They saw them as an image of God. And then even as, if you were a human being, they were like tears, right? You had peasants, slaves, servants, etc., right? But in the Hebrew Bible, it was different because there was only two. There was divinity, and then there was royalty, God and his image bearers. That means that no matter what ethnicity, no matter what social construct or or background, no matter how much money you have in the bank, no matter where you come from, you are all royalty image bearers of God and Jesus has come to restore you to that royal identity. That means we don't cast anybody out because they're different than us. We invite them into this place where we say, Others may say you different, but Jesus sees you as royalty. He has crowned you with glory and honor, He has given you dignity, and we are to look at people with that type of dignity. Mother Teresa read a story about her recently, and she was in the slums of Calcutta basically bringing a bunch of homeless, broken people, beggars out of the streets. And bringing them into a shelter to try to take care of them. And there was this one story about one of these guys that he was a beggar, and they found him almost. He, he had wounds and sores all over his body. Maggots were eating his body. He could barely breathe. They knew that he was on his deathbed. They pick him up. They take him back to the shelter. They start nursing him. One journalist comes to Mother Teresa, and she says, Mother Teresa, you? You need to understand something here. What you're doing is great. What you're doing is amazing. You're loving these people. You're nursing them back to health. But you need some more strategy and more intentionality because you're ministering to this guy who you know is going to die. You cannot save him. And there's all kinds of people out here that need saved. This doesn't make any sense. You should have left him for dead. And she said, that's not our job. Our job is to show human beings dignity, whether in life or in death. They go back in they just spend the last passing hours with this guy and he looked up at her and his last words to her was I lived my whole life like a dog but now I'm dying like a king and the point is is that when we understand that we are royalty we understand that human beings were originally designed as royalty we see them differently I gotta be honest with you folks sometimes I see people I get really aggravated with them, and I say God please Help me to see this person the way that you see them. Perhaps they're influenced by the spirit of this world. Perhaps something else is, is behind them, but that's not who they are. And we have to see that true identity that God gives them. If we're created in God's image and likeness, number three, we are God's living statues. God's living statues. See, to be God's image bearers means that we are representatives showcasing divine glory and I'm gonna have to say that one again because I could tell it's about halfway through and people are you know but you need this one to be God's image bearers means that we are representatives of God showcasing divine glory that means that when he put human beings on the earth basically he's saying nobody can really see me I'm the invisible God but the reason I'm putting you on the earth Is so that everybody can see what I'm like. You understand what I'm saying? So that when they see your life, your attitude, what you speak, what you do, how you love, you are representing my divine nature and my glory. For some people in the world, the only taste of God's goodness that they're going to get is the goodness that comes through you because you are His image bearer. You are His representative showcasing divine glory. Some people, the only taste of God's love that they'll ever get is if it flows through you and you allow it to do so. And so when an ancient king couldn't visit remote parts of the place that, that he, he oversaw or, or the place that he was, he was over, what he would do is he would set up a statue in that particular place. Basically to say, I can't be there right now, but you remember my statue. And they would have to honor the statue. And to honor the statue was to honor the king himself. To dishonor or desecrate the statue was to dishonor the king and it was punishable by death. And so that statue represented God himself. And so we understand this because in Proverbs 14.31 it says, Whoever oppresses the poor, what do they do? They show contempt for their maker. But whoever is kind to the needy, honors God. What that means is that to oppress someone made in the image of God is like oppressing God Himself. And so what happens is we recognize that everybody, these are statues, images of God that we are called to honor, but you need to understand that God is restoring the image of God in you. And we are called as representatives to showcase, to become vessels of His divine glory so that people can see and know what God is like. In the ancient world every temple had a God. And every god had a statue pointing to that god except the ancient Israelites. Now why did Israel in the Old Testament, they had a temple, but in the temple, if you remember, they didn't have any statues. matter of fact, God commanded them, do not make any graven images. Don't make a statue toward me. Don't do any of that. And it's twofold. One reason is because that God knew that if they did make a statue, they would make it wrongly that they would not see God for who He truly was. They would not make a correct image. But secondly, God always wanted His image not to be carved out of wood and stone, but He wanted His image to be human beings as He flowed through them through the Holy Spirit. And so He said, Now, in my temple we don't have images. We have priests walking around, showcasing the divine glory, tending the fire of God's light and truth and His Word, taking care of the manna, the bread of heaven, the Word of God, protecting it, offering up incense, which is this representation of communication between man man and God, and then the Ark of the Covenant, which reveals the merciful nature of God, where He sheds His blood for sinful man and covers over their sins so that they can be forgiven and have eternal life. He says, it's in the human beings that I want my image to be seen. Now, here's the problem with that, is that in, image, in human beings, how many of you look at some human beings and you say, I don't look nothing like God? How many of them you know you go to church? Like, this is one of the biggest things on the church, why people don't like churches. They're like, well, I know them people that go to church. And they ain't nothing like God. And, then it, and it puts a mark on the church, and people stay out of church because of that. And I need you to understand, folks, that I'm a flawed image of God. If you want to see God, you're only going to find maybe a glimpse on a good day in me. You know what I'm saying? Like when I preach by the grace of God, hopefully some, a little, little bit of Jesus leaks out over in a corner somewhere and hits somebody in the face. But, but odds are, you're not going to see it because I'm broken. I'm in a process where God is working by His grace with my weaknesses. We all are. He's restoring that image in me because I now have a relationship with Jesus. But here's what God knew. He said Satan has come and he has marred and broken that image on the inside of you. When we look at human beings, what you see is a broken image of God, a marred image of God, not the full representation. And get, and get this, in our sin, Satan knows that we are programmable, we are impressionable, and he uses this world system, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, to throw all kinds of advertisement at us to conform us into an image until we accept a false identity about who we are. And then God says, you have accepted all sorts of false identities. That is not who you are. You are not your sin. You're not your worst day. You're not the shame that you carry. You're not the pain that you carry. You're not those false identities and those labels that have been pinned on you. You are this. And God says, guess what? You have got it wrong, so I'm going to send you my image. He sends Jesus. And Colossians 2.15 says he is the image of the invisible God. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He says, you want to see the real image of God? Look to Jesus. Because he's the one that is the full representation of what humanity was supposed to look like according to original design. And guess what? He has come and on the cross that perfect image of God was broken and marred and torn apart. Why? So that your image of God and you could be put back together. So that now you could become restored. And go back to your true identity and be fully redeemed. And let me tell you something. When we enter into a relationship with Jesus, what he's doing is he's renewing the image of God in us. He's taking us back to Eden, if you will. He's warning. And this is why he says you got to put off the old man and you got to put on the new. The Lord knows that some of you struggle. He knows that some young folks struggle with their sexual identity. He knows that. Look. He ain't mad at you about it. He died so you could be free from it. And as a church, there's going to be continued pressure on Christians to simply bow down to that, and they're going to convince you that the loving thing to do is affirm whatever anybody says they are. And I'm going to tell you right now, Jesus says that the loving thing to do is to tell them who they are in Christ. Tell them who they are in Christ. Well... Jesus embraces anybody. He accepts anybody. You know, people say, well, Jesus loves you just the way you are. No, he loves you in spite of the way you are. Because <laughs> he wants to change you from the way you are. Because he wants to take you back. Jesus didn't love me just when I was in sin doing all kinds of crazy things. He didn't love my sin. He loved me. The true me. The real me that pushed past all those layers that I had put on. He's saying you got to take that off. That's not who you are. And you got to come back into the truth of who you are. So what does it mean to be human? We're children of God. We're royalty on earth. We're his living, breathing statues showcasing his divine glory in the world. And we've said that redemption isn't adding value to something worthless, but restoring value to something priceless. So we come back to Zacchaeus. And Jesus is walking around town, and Zacchaeus is up in a tree, And Jesus sees Zacchaeus, everybody else sees Zacchaeus as a jerk, an outcast, a tax collector, somebody that has betrayed his own people, and Jesus calls him by name. What I love about this story is that it actually gives some labels for us, doesn't it? It labels Zacchaeus. It says one is short, right? So he's probably got some kind of real self-image problem. He's identified with his shortness all of his life because when he was growing up, kids made fun of him for being short. And out of that, he starts to function out of a false identity, so he has to project himself as strong. He has to project himself as having authority over people. So what does he do? He said, you know what, I'm going to get a job where I can have authority over people. I'm going to become a chief tax collector. And that way, as short as I am, when you make fun of me, I'll take your money. (laughs) Amen. Do you know that we do this type of thing? That based on our own self-image, what our identity is, what we feel like, what people have put on us, we start to project what we want people to see. And he starts to sense this, this, this being not, not fulfilled in, in his self-image. And so he becomes a tax collector. He's known as wealthy because guess what? So many people, when they are unfulfilled, they try to seek fulfillment in amassing more wealth, getting more money, getting more stuff. This man was wealthy. He had a nice house. Tax collectors in that day would have worked for the Roman government. And even though he was a Jewish person, he worked for the Roman government. He was oppressing his very own people. People hated this man. And so Jesus walks by. He's totally aware of the false identity that Zacchaeus is wearing. And he doesn't say, hey, you've been oppressing these people. You've been hating on us and basically taking money from us and stealing from us. No, he gives him the dignity of calling him by his name. Why? Because he's trying to remind Zacchaeus not of all the stuff he's put on, but who he truly is on the inside. And he says, Zacchaeus, come down. Everybody else is calling you by a curse word, but I'm going to call you by your name. Everybody else is detested by you and disgusted by you, but I know who you truly are on the inside. And he has this encounter with grace, and he comes down, and Jesus restores his identity. It says in 19 verse 8 of Luke, Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord. Here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. See, his identity was wrapped up in power, in wealth, and the things he owned. And he knew it, but with that encounter with grace in Jesus, he said, I know that I've been wrapped up in my riches, my possessions, my wealth. I'm telling you right now, if I've stolen from anybody, I'll give back four times. If I've cheated anybody out of it, I'm going to get back for it. No longer am I going to find my identity in the things I own and the money I have. His identity has changed. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too, now he gives him an identity statement, is a son of Abraham. That means he's a child of God. For the son of man, what did he do? He came to seek and to save the lost. Do you know what's been lost? Your true identity. Who you really are. I'm a pastor. And still by the grace of God, I'm going back to God's word. Day after day. Why? To let it wash over me and remind me of who I am. Because sometimes I forget. Sometimes the flesh overtakes my life. Sometimes I hear voices from the world trying to push me and mold me into thinking other ways. But I go back to God's Word and Jesus reminds me of who I am in Christ and what my true identity is. And see, what God, what has God truly done for us in Christ? What does it mean to be His chosen, treasured possession? you care if I read a few more verses here as we're finishing up? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 11 some of the weightiest scripture you'll ever read right here. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Did y'all know you had every spiritual blessing this morning? I don't, y'all, y'all ain't even excited about it. You're like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with the pleasure and with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him. Notice that over and over again. In him. having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purposes of his will. Amen. Amen. Is that good? Did that just, you like, I didn't get all that, but man, it just somehow ministers to my soul. Amen. There's something that that scripture does. And you know, if you get into this scripture, probably I've been, uh, uh, sadly, I've been in theological debates, and this is one of those scriptures that causes three, three theological debates. You get into that word chosen and predestined, and everybody wants to fight over it, and I'm not here to do that this morning. I get, I get that there's two camps and you got the Calvinists and you got the Armenians and some emphasize the sovereignty of God that God just, and if they go really, really far, they'll say, well, God chooses some to be saved and some to be damned. And then he goes over on this other side where they emphasize man's free will and they say, you know what, God draws us, but we have a choice on whether or not we can respond. And there's a lot of arguing and bickering back and forth, but here's what I want to say about this. I like what Karl Barth said. He says when we talk about being chosen, there's something that you need to understand. Over and over again, even in this passage of Scripture, in Him or in Christ is mentioned several times. Did you hear that? In Him we were chosen. What does that mean? What does it mean when it keeps saying in Him? Matter of fact, you read the New Testament and it says 180 times in the New Testament that we are in Him or we are in Christ. hundred and eighty times you are in christ you imagine that so what does it mean to be in christ what carl bart says is something along the lines of this that you need to understand that christ is the chosen one not you christ is the chosen one he is the elect of god he is the son of god he's the one that's been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places He is the predestined one. He is the righteous one. He's the one that is holy and blameless before God. And when you say yes to him, you say yes to his chosenness and everything that God has given Jesus Christ, his perfect son. We're in him. I'm chosen in him. You understand that? I am blessed with every spiritual blessing because I'm in him. And this is so essential to understand. I'm going to give another illustration. I never do illustrations. I did one last week. It went over well. I thought I'm going to try it again. (laughs) Amen. So I need need two folks. I'm going to get Justin just because he's right here, right? Get Justin. I got a nice jacket for you. Camouflage. You care to put that on? I need a Jesus and Paul Chastain just come to my mind. (laughs) Come up here, my buddy. Paul ain't going to like this, but he's going to be Jesus. All right. So what you see, Here you go, buddy. Put that on. You see this? That's nice. It's big, ain't it? You take that hunting. You go here pretty soon. So this is us over here. This is Justin. This right here represents Justin's identity. It's all of his sin. It's all of his past. It's his family line. It's it's everything that he's ever been involved in. It's the shame that he carries. It's deep down some darkness that he don't even share with nobody. That's just that's just there. And matter of fact, the reason it's camouflage is because in some ways he, like all of us, have created a false identity because we don't want anybody to see the real us. We do it with religion, we do it with sinful patterns of behavior, we do it with all sorts of things, but we got a false identity that we project and it's covered up in sin and shame, maybe our sexual identity, maybe our brokenness, maybe our abuse, maybe the pain that we've suffered, but we wear this. This is everywhere we've been, this is all our abilities, this is everything that makes up us and we carry that. Amen. On the other side you have Jesus Christ and He comes and this is the perfect image of God. When you see Him, you see God. That's what Jesus said. And this right here is His anointing. This is the fact that He is the chosen one. He is the called one. He is sinless. He is the righteous one. He's the predestined one. He stands before God as a human being, God in the flesh but still fully human. He stands before God 100% holy, 100% blameless, 100% righteous. Isn't that something? Now here's what happens. God loves us so much that he sends his perfect image and he says this is the way it was supposed to be. You weren't supposed to be living up under the weight of all this sin and shame and trying to hide. You remember when Adam and Eve sinned? What's the first thing they did? They hid behind a fig leaf. They didn't want to hear the voice of God. And that's what we do. We hide because we don't want God to see the real us. And I'm telling you right now, God already knows the real you. He's trying to unpeel this so he can get down to really who you are. Now here's the beautiful thing is that Jesus comes, the perfect image of God. All of his chosenness, all of his righteousness, all of his holiness, all of his acceptance with God, he comes, he dies on the cross. And when he dies on the cross, he takes this off. Now, he never loses his identity. He never ceases to be God. But he takes it off, and at the cross, he lays it all down. He lays down his calledness, his chosenness, his anointing. He's stripped naked, his wholeness. He's beaten and afflicted. He lays down his integrity. He's stripped naked and ashamed at the cross. He lays down all of that. He takes on the sin of the world. And so Justin strolls into church one day. This represents you. He brings all of his brokenness, all of his false identity, everything, every lie he's ever believed about himself. And he realizes somewhere deep down, he doesn't understand it. It doesn't all line up in his mind just perfect just yet. But he realizes somewhere deep down, something is calling me from deep to deep. And he takes a step of faith, and he says, I'm taking this off. He says, I'm not living like this anymore. I'm giving this to Jesus because I see what he's done for me at the cross, and I'm laying it down at the foot of the cross. I'm putting off my false self. I'm putting off my false identity. I'm taking off the old man, and I'm putting on the new. And Jesus, amen, you can give the Lord a hand clap of that. Put it on. Yeah, it'll fit good. See this silver, which is actually like a pewter jacket, but it's the closest thing I had? It represents redemption. This means that now he stands in righteousness before God. When he comes before God, God looks at him, and you know what he sees? He sees Christ. He sees my son that is chosen, that is holy and blameless before me in love, that is blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. And you might say, but I don't deserve that blessing. What about all that stuff that I did? And he said, you know what? All that stuff you did, my son took it on the cross so that you don't have to carry it anymore. Now he's given you a new identity and I am free to bless you justly and righteously so that you can have everything that my son had. You are now in him and he is in you. Think about that. This is a new idea. Can you give these guys a hand clap? Can, amen. It's so essential. Maybe the most important thing you'll ever realize as a Christian is who you are, not on your own. Why don't stand before I don't pray before God in my own righteousness. Somebody said, but you can really get a prayer through. Well, I, I mean, to some degree I understand that. But the only real difference would be whether or not I really believe I'm in Christ when I pray and you don't. If I believe I'm in Christ when I pray and you believe you're in Christ when you pray, guess what? There's no difference between my prayer and yours because he answers them as if Christ, his own son, was standing there, holy and blameless before him in his sight. We are chosen in him. We are righteous in him. We are called in him. We are set free from sin in him. And he's restoring us back to to our original design in Jesus Christ. No matter where we go, everything you have, everything you need, It's there available for you in Christ. Now I'm going to finish with this last thing and we're done. I want you to know you are his treasured possession. He demonstrated that when he came and laid down everything that he was at the cross. He said, this is how much I love you. And number one, I want you to understand your existence is a sign of your chosenness. Your very existence is a sign of your chosenness. Have you, ever thought of, have you ever thought about that, that you are a living human being that is unique? And there's only about six, seven, eight billion of us in the world right now. And you are unique and you get to breathe air. And if you're like Justin, you got a killer mustache. And that's unique. But he, he is unique, you know, we're all unique. But your existence is a sign of your chosenness. Psalm 139, verse 13 through 16, it says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. In my mother's womb, he was thinking about me. He was knitting me together in my mother's womb. He had already had a design and a plan for me. And he says, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Your very existence is a sign of your chosenness. Number two, it says that he chose you specifically in love. He created you from an overflow of his love. Now, I want you to imagine you're somewhere, some of you young folks that are single, some of you young men that are single, imagine you go somewhere and you say, man, I see a little girl over there. I think, you know what, I'd like to strike up a conversation. And imagine walking over to her and saying, you know what, I've been looking at you from the other side, which is your first mistake. (laughs) But I've looked over and I've seen That you've really got a lot lot of love to give. And I would like to be the recipient of that love. (laughs) Somebody's going to go try this, I bet. (laughs) But that's kind of self-focused, isn't it? I want to be the recipient of that love. But imagine you flip it on its head and you go over and you say, you know what? I've been looking at you from across the room. And I just see how well you treat your friends. You're generous. You're kind. You're caring. You're compassionate. And I want you to understand that I've got a lot of love to give, and I would like to give you some of that love. God creates us because he desires to pour out his love on us. You understand this? He desires to pour out his love on us. He creates us as an overflow of that love. And he's saying, look, whether you respond to me or not, I'm going to love you anyway. I've already desired and chose you in this love to make you, to design you, because ultimately, number three, He created you and chose you to redeem you to your true identity. To your true identity. He's not here to to affirm your broken identity. He's here to save you and redeem you and restore you to your true identity. And because we are broken, that means there is a redemption that is necessary. There's a redemption that is necessary. Some people say, well, I was just just born this way. No, let me tell you something. The Bible says that we must be born again, that we must put off the old man and put on the new. There's a new creation in Christ Jesus where we are no longer what we used to be. Behold, old things have passed away and all things have become new in Christ Jesus. And the Holy Spirit will make that you abundantly aware of that reality, but you must respond to it. I'm not saying that it's easy. You remember when they came out of the land of Egypt? They knew that there was freedom. They knew that there was a land flowing with milk and honey just 11 days away, but they could not get a hold of their new identity because they'd been in bondage so long, enslaved so long, that they believed that they were still chained up. And I'm telling you, the lies you've believed you got to come up and you got to shed those off and say, this is not me. This is not who God called me to be. I'm ready to lay this down and let Jesus restore me and redeem me to my true identity. Number four and last one, He chose you for His purposes. Ephesians 1.11, In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. He chose you to be a part of his purposes and he is on a mission to redeem and renew all things he's on a mission to redeem and renew all things and he chose you for his purposes and he's saying if you will come to me I need you to understand you're a child of God you are royalty and you are my divine image bearer and if you will come to me and you will walk in a relationship with me you will lay down your false identity You will turn from sin. I'm not saying it's easy, but there's grace available to empower you to start walking in a new life, in a new identity, to lay down some of that old stuff and say, that's not who I am. I'm not identifying as that anymore. I'm identifying as a child of God set free, chosen, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Careful with the words you use about who you are. You can't afford to believe something about you that God hasn't written in his book. Amen. And so we come to this moment, and he says, if you will be this vessel, if you will understand that you're my treasured possession, then you will know that everywhere that you go, there's an opportunity for redemption to break out. That you can share my truth with somebody. You can love somebody and be a signpost of the coming kingdom, of the divine glory. And when they see it, when they see that image of God, when they hear the gospel, when they realize this, and they come to truth and they realize this is what I've been called to. This is the true me. This is the real me. All of a sudden, redemption breaks out in somebody else's life and you see the kingdom of heaven being advanced on earth as it is in heaven. This is what he's called us to. This is what he's moving us into. Amen. I want you to bow your heads with me. We can become agents of His redemption. And that simply, first and foremost, begins with you choosing. You know, I don't, I don't believe that a one prayer saves a person, but I believe that God draws people by His Holy Spirit, and He begins to do a work in them, and I believe that we are to respond to that call. And so if you sense the Holy Spirit tugging on your heart and you believe that Jesus is saying, you've carried a false identity for way too long, this is not who you are. And you need to understand that you are currently a sinner in need of a Savior. And you need to turn to me and put your full trust and full faith in me as an act of faith, as a simple act of faith. I want you to raise your hand before me and before the Lord just to say, that's me. I'm ready to put off who I am and give it all to Christ. I want to be in Christ. I want to inherit eternal life. Anybody in the room. Anybody in the room? I see a couple of hands. Anybody else in the room? Now I want to pray for you, but for the rest of us as well, I want to pray because this is not just people who need salvation, but people who need to be reminded on a daily basis of who they are. And so, Father, we come to you. I want you to pray with me. Father, we come to you right now. And we lay at the foot of the cross our false identities everything we've covered up with our shame our pain our abuse our sinfulness God our our sexuality our our false identity the lies that we have believed Lord our rejection everything that we have believed about ourselves God we place that on the cross right now and Jesus we receive one forgiveness of sins We thank you, God, that we are forgiven. We thank you that we are redeemed by your blood, purchased out of the hand of the enemy. We thank you, Lord, that we can now be filled with the Holy Spirit and anointed. And we ask you, Lord, to fill us now with your Holy Spirit. Give us a new heart. Give us a new mind. Help us to know that now we are a new creation in you. Old things have passed away and now everything is made new in us, Lord. And so we ask you to fill us afresh. We believe that you died on the cross for our sins. You were raised on the third day. We surrender it all to you and Jesus in this moment. We confess you as Lord. And that means, Lord, that we live by your word, by your truth and not our own. Not by what the world says, but by God, what you say. And so, Lord, we receive that identity that only comes from you and from your spirit right now in Jesus' mighty name.